Thank you, Matt and Cotty, for sharing your gifts with us. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Joel. We'll be continuing our study in the Minor Prophets this morning. Um, a couple weeks ago, we finished Hosea, and then last week, Katie and I were thankful for the opportunity to be able to be with Katie's family and the loss of her uncle, and we're thankful for your prayers while we were while we were away, and this morning we'll resume our study through the Minor Prophets with the, with the book of Joel. I'd also ask you if you would open your bulletins. There will be a sheet provided there with the notes, and those will be helpful for you as we walk through the, walk through the first couple of chapters this morning. As we begin, I want you to know that as I'm preaching, I also want to be equipping you to learn how to study the Bible better. How to study the Bible better. There's a quote amongst preachers um, that they say to think that discipleship occurs through preaching is like going into the baby's room spraying milk milk on them and saying you fed them and so if you're not reading the word yourself then you can't expect much growth if you aren't in the word if you aren't digging into it studying it yourself on a daily basis or during the week in some capacity, then you cannot expect to be walking with Christ. And so I want to help equip you in learning how to study these books. And so particularly with the minor prophets, they can be very, very difficult. And so we're approaching it this morning in a, in a simple way. And the title of the sermon is Knowing God Through Joel. Now, one of the questions you can always ask is when you approach a book like this is what do we learn about God? What is Joel trying to teach us about God? Another question you can ask is what, does, what is Joel trying to teach us about us, about humanity? And these are very basic questions that can really help guide you through these books and understand what's the message, what's the main point. And so I would encourage you to use this method as you're studying on your own and walking through things like this. This morning, we will be getting through chapter 1 through 227, and I would invite you to stand with me as we read chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. It reads, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell tell their children and their children to another generation what the cunning locust left, the swarming locust has eaten, what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten, and what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is dried up. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. 
Please be seated. Father, we thank you for the minor prophets. We thank you for Joel and what he seeks to teach us about who you are and who we are. May our hearts be open, our spirits be receptive, Father, and may we be convicted and changed through your word. Lord, guard us. Guard us from ourselves. Guard us from Satan. Lord, guard us from deception. We pray that we would hear your truth this morning and that we would respond in obedience. Thank you for your presence through your spirit and may it be powerful with us today. It's in your son's name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. The first thing that we see in the book of Joel when we ask the question, what does Joel teach us about God, is that God will interrupt our lives to discipline us. God will interrupt our lives to discipline us. You probably saw the things there, some odd things about locusts and then about armies. What Joel is actually talking about this whole time, not, he's not talking about a different army, a literal man army. It's literally the locusts that have swept into the land of Israel and devoured their land, utterly devoured their land. You might remember that God used a plague against Egypt to help his people. Well, now God is using the same plague against his own people because they've been disobedient. We can see this disobedience so clearly as we move along in the text when it says all these threats are coming upon his people. But the Lord says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. It's clear that the reason these things are happening in Israel is because they have been disobedient. I want to tell you a little bit about locusts because this may not seem familiar to you. And so I'm not a locust expert. Some of you, someone else may be more qualified, but I'll give you what I, what I can. Swarms can be of immense size. An area of 2,000 square miles was recorded around the Red Sea in 1881. Let me read that again. An area of 2,000 square miles. They can contain huge numbers in a tight density, up to 120 million per square mile. 120 locusts, million locusts for, per square mile. When dead, and they all die, they don't have a long lifespan, and when they die, they pretty much all die together at the same time. They give out a revolting stench, and their bodies breed typhus and other diseases in both animals and humans. Augustine, living in about the 300s to 400s, he was in North Africa, and he said a large swarm, having ravished the land, eating leaves and fruits, later drowned in the sea. They were thrown up dead on the coast and eventually killed 800,000 people. An army in the area of 30,000 was reduced to 10,000, simply by the locust plague. Now, I want to give you, I have a video that I want to show and this may give you a more modern example and help us relate a little bit better. Now, this is, these people are filming this in a car, and it's in the Congo of Africa. And they've been sitting in this car about 40 minutes watching this swarm of locusts travel, and it has not decreased at all in 40 minutes. If we had the volume up, which we won't, there's a lot of screaming coming from inside the car particularly as they start to hit the windows. Just so you're aware, the early stage of the locusts, they're not able to fly. So as they're, it takes about five weeks, I believe, and as they're getting ready to fly, they're simply on the ground eating all the vegetation in an area, this many locusts. 
All right, that's good. (laughs) Hopefully that helps you see the impact. So what's happening in Israel is God has sent this plague on his people to interrupt their lives. Now let's look at what exactly is happening because of this plague. If you look at point one, this is called the immediate disaster locust. There's a shortage of food. As we said, they've eaten all, they've eaten all the vegetation. Even the drunkard, he's usually able to ignore his circumstances because he's covering it up with drink is not able to ignore what's going on. The farmers lack work, which means they lack income, and even the priests are distraught because the necessary items for worship of Yahweh, which is grain, grain and drink offerings, are gone. And so the Lord has brought this disaster on Israel to interrupt their lives so that they might repent. Get this. The Lord will at times interrupt our lives so that we might turn to him he will use extreme circumstances so that we might turn to him but there's a bigger point at work here the locusts are only an immediate disaster there's a bigger disaster that the lord is trying to protect his people from and the bigger disaster as you'll see in your notes is the day of the lord look at chapter 1 verses 15 through 16 these are pasted in your notes for your help but verses 15 through 16 Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Look, pay attention here. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God? What God is saying to His people is, what's happening now is only a sign of what's to come. What's happening is now is only to protect you from a worse disaster which will come. And this day of the Lord is nothing less than His judgment. Upon all peoples. We see this if you look ahead in the book to chapter 3, verses 12 and 14. Verses 12 and 14. The day of the Lord is which, a day in which God will judge all peoples. And so, what God is doing with these disasters, the reason He's interrupting the lives of His people is so that He will protect them from even greater judgment that's to come, a final judgment. Verses 12 and 14, let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. The reason God is bringing this disaster and interrupting the lives of His people, even down to their basic lives, even to coming to worship, and saying it's not even enjoyable anymore, is so that they might repent, turn to Him, and avoid the final judgment, the greater judgment, and destruction. And I hope that we see this. That our lives aren't so busy that we don't allow them to be interrupted by God to where we repent constantly and turn to Him to avoid greater judgment. Now we must also always see that God's discipline is a form of kindness. It's a form of kindness intended to lead us to this repentance. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. That's Hebrews chapter 12 verse 10. And if you look to Romans, you'd be reminded in chapter 2, His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. 
And so might we always see when God disciplines us, when God interrupts our lives with unusual or surprising circumstances, that those things are meant to lead us even more towards Him. To fall on our knees and express our dependence on Him. The reason God is bringing these very unusual circumstances to Israel is so they might turn to Him and be saved. God will interrupt our lives. This is what we learn about God from Joel, that He will interrupt our lives, and that's a, a per, the purpose is discipline. The purpose is repentance. Point two. Point two. In worship, God expects our emotions to reflect our relationship to Him. Now, you might not think this is very important, but we wanna, I want to bring this out very clearly. Let me describe to you a little bit of how our culture sees emotions. Particularly, our age has been defined by some as a triumph of the therapeutic. If you look at sociologists, ethics folks, they they describe it as a triumph of the therapeutic. People are told the health of their emotions are based on their self-esteem and not relationship to God. Not relationship to God. Spirituality becomes more of a self-improvement exercise than having anything to do with reality and the reality of our relationship to God. Now, I don't want you to think I'm bashing psychology or anything like that here. I realize that we need help. We need those things. But what I do want to say is God has created us holistically. And so when our spiritual life is not right, when our, the reality of our relationship with God is not right, then that fleshes itself out in our emotions, in our physical life, in a variety of ways. And so when our emotions are not expressing the truth of where we are in our relationship with God, it's a lie. It's a lie. And this is what God is saying to His people. This is what He's saying to His people. For the first, first emotion that God expresses, uh, wants, desires of His people at this time, is mourning. Look at chapter 3, verses 13 and 16. 13 and 16. Verse 13, put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Then, if you're looking at your notes, chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Rend your hearts and not your garments. What God desires of His people at this time when their relationship with Him is broken is mourning. Is mourning. When your relationship with God is broken, He doesn't expect you to come into worship and be jolly. He expects you to come into worship mourning and repenting to Him. Your emotions should reflect that reality of brokenness in your relationship with God. I've heard of people who have been walking in sin for a a period of time in their lives and worship is misery to them. This is what happens when we choose to rebel against God. Worship is no longer a joy. But I also want to, to say this. Sometimes, especially in our churches these days, we come in and we we put on a face. We put on a face to make it seem like everything's okay when it's not. 
And worship in some sense, because we're around people and because we're singing and things, it makes us feel good. And, but that feel good is only temporary. And so when we leave this place, our lives during the week are just miserable. We're not happy. We're not joyful. What God expects of our emotions is that they're lined up with our relationship to Him. That they reflect that relationship with Him. And so when you're walking with the Lord, there should be joy. There should be trust. But when you're not, there should be mourning. There should be that sadness. And we see all of this very clearly in the text. Move on to point B, gladness. The people should not stay in this sadness forever, but they should shift. Their emotions should shift. Chapter 2, verse 21. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. At this time in the text, the people have repented. They have turned to the Lord. And what the Lord has done is He has restored them. And so He says, in light of my restoration of you, in light of me bringing you back to Myself, you should rejoice. Your emotions should reflect the truth of what God has done. And since you are now one with God, sin is no longer breaking your relationship, you should be rejoicing. You should be rejoicing. Verse 23, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. As God restores His people, they should respond in joy. But people, if you are not walking with the Lord and your fellowship with the Lord, if it's broken in some way, don't fake it. Turn to Him in mourning. Let that truth be evident even in your emotions of who God is and what He's done. We can see this uh, in Psalm 51. Psalm 51. David, he expects God to forgive him because of what he knows about God. See Psalm 51 verse 1 in your notes. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. You see, David's emotions were trusting in who God was. He trusted that God was a God of love. And so in his sin, God would still forgive him. And so he calls on the truth of who God is in this situation, in the situation of his sin. And so in light of this, the kingdom of God is never a careless happiness. But it's a joyful trust. Likewise, our weeping is not simply sorrowful despair, but it's a hopeful weeping. You see, the people of God were supposed to weep in Joel because of their sin, but their weeping should also reflect on the promises of God that as we come to Him in repentance, He will forgive. He will restore us. He will love us. We're going to get to apply this, exercise this in the Lord's Supper here in a few moments. I think this is a perfect example. You see, as we think about the Lord's Supper, we will take these elements, the body of the bl- and the blood, the wine and the, br- or the juice and the, blood, uh, and the bread, excuse me. And as we think about these elements, we'll think about Christ's body, which was broken for us, which died for our sins. As we think about the blood, we'll think about the blood that was spilt to cover our sins. 
And there should be sadness in that. There should be a reflection in which we say, God, I'm sorry for my sins. We should inspect our hearts and we should repent. But at the same time, there's joy in thinking in the Lord's Supper. Because when Jesus presented the Lord's Supper and did it with His disciples, at the end He said, I will not take it again until I take it anew in the kingdom with you. And so as we think on the Lord's Supper, it's one of repentance, but it's also of one of promise in which we long for the party that God has for us in heaven, in which we will be with Him, we will be with Christ, and the sin will be no more. And so there's this balance of mourning over our sin, but rejoicing in what God has for us. Do we see this? Is there this balance of emotion in our lives where we're often repenting of our sin and mourning over it, but we're also rejoicing because of the truth of what God has done to bring us to Himself? I wonder if there's this balance. You'll see that question in the application there. I also know that there are people here, some of us have to work harder at one of these emotions than the other. Some of us struggle with really weeping over our sin. We struggle with being saddened by it. It might be something in our personality. We don't normally, we're not a low person. So really we have to work at that and think on our sin and just how much God hates that and how holy He is. And we really need to seek that out, time, to really mourn over our sin. But then there are some of us also who struggle with being positive. We struggle with rejoicing. But we're called to this. We're called to balance these emotions in our relationship with God where we think about our sin and we think about His work, His gracious work, and we rejoice in that. So, we can think about the psalmist. He, and even in his despair, he said in Psalm 42, 11, Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. So I would encourage you who struggle with rejoicing a lot, speak to your own soul. Don't let your soul speak to you and keep you in despair, but speak to it and say, Hope in God, I will praise Him again. He will restore me. He is faithful. Don't dwell in despair. As we move on, point three you'll see a lot in Joel of his combining these ideas of where the earth is as far as it's not producing anymore and where the people are, they're in sin. And so the point we want to make here and call out that Joel is showing us is that the earth is used as our reminder. God uses the earth as our reminder. And here's the big thing. The earth and our sin are intertwined. This is from the beginning, this is from the third chapter of Genesis. Both our sin and the earth remember the day that sin came. When Adam and Eve sinned, and God said, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So we shouldn't be frustrated or surprised when the earth is not doing well. When it does things that destruction, that cause destruction. This is part of sin. Our sin has caused this in the earth. Romans 8 chapter 20 also reveals this connectedness. For the creation was subjected to futility. 
This is because of sin. God subjected the creation to, to futility. That futility means frailty. It's a want of vigor. The creation is longing to do more, to produce more. But at this time, in the state of sin in the world, it struggles. It struggles and it can't produce. And so this is a good time to talk a little bit about how we interpret evil events today. You see, in Joel's day, Joel is saying, look, the creation is not producing. You need to look into your hearts because the reason it's happening is because of your sin. God desires to restore you and to restore your land, but your sin is preventing it. Now, as we take this into modern times, we usually struggle between two extremes when evil events hit us. And I want you to use a couple examples here. The one extreme is God sent it to punish the people. And the other extreme is, it was just a random event. It was just a random event. And there are a couple perfect examples here. Katrina is one. Katrina came and hit New Orleans, and it was a perfect opportunity for people to say, I knew God was going to get that city one day. I knew He was. But the ironic thing was that Katrina didn't hit the city where people thought that it would hit it. It didn't destroy uh, the downtown it didn't destroy the french quarter where where all those things happen it destroyed other areas and so either god has bad aim or we might be mistaken another one is a a lutheran meeting and i want to read to you uh, this was on a blog from john piper but this happened in minneapolis and i want to read to you part of this blog and it's also it was a news story it says on a day when no severe weather was predicted or expected a tornado forms baffling the weather experts most saying they never seen anything like it it happens right in the city the city minneapolis the tornado tornado happens on a wednesday during the evangelical lutheran church of america's national convention in the minneapolis convention center According to the ELCA's printed convention schedule, at 2 p.m. on Wednesday, August 19th, the fifth session of the convention was to begin. Here's the subject. The main item of the session, consideration, proposed social statement on human sexuality. The issue is whether practicing homosexuality is a behavior that should disqualify a person from the pastoral ministry. And so what happened that day right around the time that they were about to make this decision is a tornado came out of what seemed like nowhere and hit the building. And so it would seem like a perfect opportunity to say God was intentionally hitting the building. But the only problem is we don't have God speaking to us and saying directly, this is it. As in Katrina, we don't have God saying, this is what I'm doing. And so to claim that is only conjecture. On the other hand, to say it's only a completely random act, the other extreme. If God's in control, why are we calling on Him if they're just random acts? If God's in control, then He has something to do with this. Then He is able to work in this. Also, why did they say of Jesus... Even the wind and the seas obey Him. So I want you to see the two extremes that we usually use today. God did it. He was intentionally trying to destroy these people, judge these people, and it was only a random act. These are the extremes. But there's a biblical balance when we're talking about evil today, and it's found in none other than Jesus. Luke chapter 13, verses 4-5. through You can write these down. These are not in your notes. 
Luke chapter 13, verses 4 through 5. And in all of this, I want to remind you that what God is doing with the earth and all of these things is teaching, reminding us. And so as these things happen, it's a reminder of our sin and our need to repent. And this is what Jesus says. Luke chapter 13, 4 through 5. Those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The message when the earth does these things, when natural, natural disasters come, when evil comes, when uh, people come and hit the twin towers, is not God was judging those people. It's everyone needs to repent because God is coming to judge all people. When the earth does something surprising, when it does something that affects us, it's to remind us of our sin, how our sin has affected the earth, and that we're responsible to turn to the Lord. Another way that the Lord uses the earth to teach us, to remind us, is our dependence. And in Joel chapter 1, verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20. Remember that the land has been ravished by these locusts. It's not only the people who are suffering, but it's the animals as well. It's all of the land is affected. And so in 120 it says, Even the beast of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. You see, the animals are so weak because of the land, and it's not producing that it says they're panting for the Lord. And what's ironic here is the people are not depending on the Lord, but the animals are. The land is being affected because the people are living in sin, and they're not turning to the Lord in repentance, but the animals are the example because they're panting, they're relying on the Lord in some sense. This is not the only time that God has used animals to teach us. God rebuked a man through a donkey one time, and Jesus tells us to look to the birds. Our lesson that it is God who provides. And so, creation teaches us about our dependence. It teaches us about our sin and it teaches us about our dependence. And also, it teaches us about our redemption. Creation teaches us about our redemption. In Romans 8, chapter 21, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the glory of the children of God. There is a day that the creation will be restored. Creation longs for that day. And we also should be longing for that day with creation. And even in the book of Joel, it's not completely just an end times thing. But what God says to his people is, if you will repent, I will restore your land. I will redeem you. And when the people repent, what happens? The land is redeemed. We'll see more of this here. The last point, God desires to redeem us. What we learn, what Joel teaches us about God is that God will interrupt our lives to discipline us. That God wants our emotions to reflect the truth of where we are with Him. That God uses the earth to teach us 
and that He desires to redeem us. God is very specific, first of all, in telling us what we need to do to find redemption. Look at chapter 2, verses 15. Verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his chamber, then the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord. Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? I have a list here in this point. What we need to do in finding God and finding redemption is he tells his people to fast. He tells his people to fast. And we want to point out this specifically. Fasting, we don't often do this, probably a lot of us, but it sharpens our spiritual awareness. Because we're often doing things physically all day, we're eating and all these things, we're not aware of the invisible, of the relationship with God that we can't actually see. And so when God calls His people to fast, it's be aware of what's going on beyond what you can see. Let there be a visible expression of the spiritual desperation that you have. Do you really want to be restored to God? And you will go without. You will sacrifice. You will seek Him in mourning. You see, repentance, redemption requires a sacrifice of ourselves. And fasting is one expression of this. But fasting, you might be surprised, in the Old Testament was almost always done in a communal way. Almost always it was done in a communal way. And this is why it's gonna, He's going to tell His people to gather together. You see, it's not just one of us who's in sin. We're all responsible for one another. And so when there's someone who's in sin, we come together. We ask for prayer. We say, will you fast with me over this sin that I can't get rid of? Will you help me? Will you encourage me in this? This is a communal thing. We come together, we support one another, and we help each other in all of this. And so we gather together. We intercede. 2.17, when he says, have the priests get them between the vestibule and the altar, this is the place of intercession. It's right between where the sacrifices would be and where God's presence is in the temple. And so the priest would go and to this place of intercession and they intercede on behalf of the entire nation. Now I want to challenge you with this church It's not just one of us. It's not just individuals that need to repent. It's we as a community of faith need to repent together and support one another in this repentance that we may walk faithfully together, not just individually. This is why they fasted together. This is why God says, call a solemn assembly. We're not intended to walk through this alone, just individuals. We're intended to walk through this as a community of faith. This is why the church is not one. It's all of us, members, together. Christ. And so, he tells us how to return to him together. Also, he redeems us in our circumstances. 
chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. His, God's jealousy and his pity are different sides of his love. He's jealous because he doesn't share his people. His people are his, and they aren't to cheat on him. They can't be owned. They can't serve two masters. They're just his. That is why he is jealous for you. He is possessive of his people. They are only his. But also he is compassionate. And this is why they are able to receive forgiveness. Because God loves them so deeply. He's even able to forgive their sins. Even willing to forgive their sins. But he redeems us. And then he also restores, redeems our circumstances. And this is where we see him redeeming the earth as well. Chapter 2 verse 25. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. God desires to redeem us but he also desires to redeem our circumstances is there any way that you see God working in really difficult circumstances right now are you in really difficult circumstances and you need to see how God is working in those trust that this is a God who works regardless of the circumstances for the good of his people in the New Testament we see this in Romans 8 he works this all, all things out for the good for those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. Trust that as you seek the Lord for His forgiveness, He forgives your sins and He also works all things out for your good and for His glory. For your good and for His glory. Just a couple more application questions. When have you made a great sacrifice in seeking restoration with God? I wonder if your repentance is just really quick and passing. God, I'm sorry about that. I hope it gets better. Or do you deeply repent? Mourn over your sin and seek change. Repentance is costly. It's a sacrifice of your own self. Because it is trusting completely in the Lord. And then, again, how is God revealing Himself to you now through these difficult circumstances? How is He revealing Himself now? You see, Joel teaches us that God intervenes in our lives to discipline us, to lead us to repentance. So if you're in some unusual, just difficult circumstance, a travesty, and you're wondering, why is God doing this? can't explain to you just exactly why, but I know this, that our circumstances are always intended to lead us back to God, to repentance. So if you aren't near Him, seek Him. Fall on your knees. Trust Him, because He is orchestrating all events for your good if you're His. For your good. I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward, and we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together.
But as I do, I also want to remind you that God has guided us in the way of repentance, of restoration. That it is us coming together, repenting together of our sins as a church, as a community. And so as we partake of these elements here in a moment, if there's sin in your life, if there's sin in the community, you and someone else in here, even outside of here, the message of Joel was, even the bridegroom in his chamber needs to leave before he gets married, even though he's on the way, he needs to leave and he needs to go repent. I don't know about any of you men, but I would have had a lot of trouble doing that. A lot of trouble. But this is the importance of repentance. It comes first. Our relationship with God is that important that we be restored to Him. And so, if there's anything that you need to think on, pray about, repent of, or restore, then I'm going to give you a chance to do that. So, I'm going to pray, and then we'll be ready to partake of the Lord's Supper together. Father, we thank You for Your great salvation. We thank You, Lord, that You have led us in a life in which we can dwell in peace together and with You. Lord, we thank You for what Joel teaches us, that a book that was written so long ago has so much application to us today. Thank You that creation teaches us about You and about Your work in our lives. May we walk slowly enough to where we pay attention to these things. Where we heed the wisdom. And we trust in you. Thank you for the chance to partake of this Lord's Supper. Thank you for your salvation through your son Jesus. For dying for our sins. Thank you that we do it together. It's a sign that we are called to walk through this life together. We praise you that you're a mighty and wise God. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.